Hi everyone, welcome to this month's Cyber Threat Briefing again from Showcloud. Obviously delighted to have you all with us again. We've got a few different topics today to talk about um, and we'll, we're going to finish on an, an opinion piece, let's say so. I don't think we were quite agreed on everything in this one, so this might be an interesting episode. As always, we are joined by Hugh Rayner. Hello. And we're also joined by Aaron Dowdswell as well. Hi everyone. Excellent. So, welcome guys, uh, as always. Just to note, this will be the last episode that we do before we finish, but we're going to have a little break over summer. We're back in September with the briefing, uh, as you were. Right, so guys, we've got a couple of uh, topics of discussion today. So, we're going to talk about uh, WordPress security. And, and I guess the major question is, is it still a problem in 2023? And the reason we're going to cover this is because we haven't covered it yet. And it's quite a big part of, I guess, the internet. So, the few bits that caught my eye this week as we were looking through um, topics to cover. And so we'll, we'll cover WordPress but quite in a general sense and what, what organizations can do now to kind of secure their WordPress instances, for example. We're also going to talk about the US Cyber Trust Mark. That's something that was announced by the administration in the US over the past few days. Um, but we've got an underlying question there, which is can, man- can mandatory standards really drive security improvement? And so we're going to explore a little bit around standards and the role they play in the cybersecurity market as well. So we'll have a quick jump into the WordPress security piece. So what is WordPress? Well, a quick recap on it. And there's a couple of stats here that were a bit eye-opening to me when I first read them. So WordPress is essentially a, a website. It's got a CMS built into it. So it allows people to, to spin up a website pretty quickly and manage it. There are actually, according to an article, um, some research that's been done, there's 835 million sites on the internet that use WordPress. Um, and there's over 2 million downloads of WordPress every single year. So it's quite a big quite a big deal. I think it makes up 40-something percent of the overall internet estate um, is WordPress or WordPress of some description. Selling points are it's quite easy to use and quite easy to spin up. And what that does is it, it kind of lowers the bar of entry to, to get someone getting a website on, on the internet. They may not have a full kind of understanding or appreciation of all the things that they need to do to secure that, that WordPress instance. Um, the reason we're going to talk about it today in this episode um, is two things that came to light as we were looking for, for kind of the news over the past few weeks. And there were two uh, essentially fairly critical vulnerabilities in, in WordPress plugins. Um, so the first one is the WooCommerce plugin. And the second one is the all-in-one security. Uh, and that's actually a security plugin, which is vulnerable uh, and, and impacts on the overall security of the WordPress instance. So the first one, the Woo- WooCommerce plugin, so essentially that's a fairly critical vulnerability that uh, basically exploits containing a, a specific header and cause vulnerable sites to treat additional payloads as, they, as if they were coming from an administrative user. So what they're trying to do is they basically fake the fact that an administrative user is sending a request and what they're then doing is, is, is basically installing plugins in the back end through this mechanism. What that allows you to do is then execute malicious code. So there's a fairly critical vulnerability around in, in the WooCommerce plugin that allows um, users, essentially low-level privileged users, to uh, essentially execute malicious code and put a file upload or whatever it is that they want to do with their newfound access and to get some persistence and get some access to the WordPress instance. It's a fairly big piece. We're not going to cover that in depth beyond that kind of summary. Just bear bear in mind that there are things like that out in the wild and quite a lot of them. The other vulnerability that caught my eye was the all-in-one security, so AIOS, and that's a WordPress security plugin. So this is something you can basically install in your instance of WordPress. It's got a web app firewall, content protection, 
login security tools and it's sold as something that stops bots and prevents brute force attacks. Um, what it was actually doing was logging plain text passwords off of login attempts for someone come along to the site, attempts to log in, puts their password in. It was actually then storing that password in plain text in a, in a text file um, outside of the, uh, the database. So the impact of that is an administrator or someone who has got file access um, to the underlying system uh, can therefore just read the valid plain text credentials. What it means is that you know, if, if you've got a privilege access onto the box already, yes, you can pull the, the passwords, but they'll be hashed. Well, yeah, they'll be hashed. Therefore, we'll need cracking offline, whereas these ones were just the straight-up password in a text file. So obviously immediately reusable uh, as well elsewhere. So they were the two things that caught our eye. And what we want to do now is talk about WordPress generally and give you a flavor of what it is and kind of what the attack service look like and how, how the types of vulnerabilities that are commonly identified and, and, and crucially the things that you should do as an organization now to protect your um, WordPress instances. So Aaron, excuse my long rambling start to the podcast, but could you talk us through what the attack service of WordPress and, and also actually similar CMS applications. So WordPress isn't alone in what it does and what it offers. Um, could you just talk us through the attack service of it and, and what it essentially is under the hood? Yeah, absolutely. As you said, WordPress is just a CMS. There are others on the market. So actually, the attack surface of WordPress is pretty similar to those other CMSs. But when we break it down, what do we have on a CMS like WordPress? Well, you've got the website element, that front-facing user element. So users may be able to, if it's a static website, probably not do a lot other than browse the, the front end that's uh, presented to them. But if you've got an interactive website, maybe there are forms and submissions. So that is the first instance, that user input, making sure that's protected. But WordPress is much larger than that because it's a CMS you've got the admin panel side to it. And this is the really interesting bit, I think, that uh, you know, you've, you've got privileged users that will log in to manage your WordPress site, either directly through the site itself, you know, wp-admin, that uh, URL that everyone knows to log into the WordPress admin instances. That's the default uh, URL for the admin login page. Once you're logged in as an administrator or even as a, a low-privileged administrative user, you've got the ability to start making changes to the site. And WordPress in particular has this really large ecosystem of plugins, which you know we've touched on already, Nick, around, that allow you to enhance the features of your website. It's the main selling point of WordPress, really. It's that adaptability of it, the fact that you can just grab a plugin, it changes the way your site works, it gives you new metrics, it does extra performance monitoring or statistics, it, loads of ways to make your site useful and, and tailorable to your yourself. But that, along with being WordPress's biggest strength, is actually its biggest weakness. It's a semi-unregulated market for plugins in the sense that, um, you know, that there is some level of checks that WordPress themselves do. But for the most part, if you publish something and people start giving it a good rating, it's going to sit there on WordPress and, and end up being used. On top of that, you don't even have to use the official plugin store. You could just download a plugin off the internet and uh, you know, use it on your website without going through the official routes. So there's there's this inherent risk associated with all of this third-party created plugin content being used on your WordPress site. And that's typically where we end up seeing vulnerabilities in WordPress. The other thing, of course, that's worth noting here is WordPress itself, as you mentioned, it has a huge market share. And that makes it a target for attackers. That means that attackers are looking for vulnerabilities in plugins that exist. They're looking at developing their own plugins and trying to get people to install them or find ways to bypass security mechanisms that exist within WordPress. 
So just because of its market ubiquity, it's got a lot of eyes on it from malicious actors because they know if they can compromise a well-used WordPress instance or find a zero day, shall we say, in, in WordPress, then they know they're going to be able to compromise millions, hundreds of millions of websites. Brilliant. Thanks, Aaron. Um, here, I'm going to bring you in here. So what, from a pen testing perspective, what types of vulnerabilities do we commonly identify within WordPress sites? We, we tested quite often and they'll come up fairly regularly on things that clients want us to look at. So what are the kind of key vulnerabilities that we do find? Yeah, so I guess before we can dive into that, worth a bit of clarification on on this. When we talk about WordPress, there's there's really sort of two WordPresses that we can we can be talking about. There's WordPress.org, which is a you know self-hosted instance where you install the CMS on your own your own server, you set up the backend database and things like that. And there's WordPress.com, which is you know like a, a SaaS solution where you're running your WordPress site on on WordPress. The commercial arm of WordPress is infrastructure. So the vulnerabilities that affect those are slightly different in terms of the way they work as well. So obviously with a with a with a self-hosted instance, the potential consequence of exploitation of a vulnerability is is a lot more significant because you're potentially allowing that attacker into into your organization's infrastructure rather than a sort of isolated area that you're exclusively using to host a website. But really, given the the number of plugins and the way that they work, we are seeing hundreds of different types of vulnerability, really, and and really impactful ones as well. WordPress runs uses SQL, so you know commonly we'll see we'll see SQL injection attacks, and and really, I guess like like Aaron mentioned earlier, we've got the the WordPress core and the WordPress plugins. Anyone can produce these plugins. You don't need to be a skilled developer. You don't need to know anything about, you know, secure development practices or anything like that. You're able to, you know, develop this plugin, connect it into the WordPress instance and, you know, leave it running there forever, which, you know, obviously presents uh, quite a significant risk. So we do see um, issues with the WordPress core itself that is, you know, developed and maintained by the WordPress organization. They update that normally about once a once a quarter normally that will fix you know really significant bug fixes vulnerabilities and things like that but actually only makes up about four or five percent of the you know total number of of vulnerabilities and things that are being exploited so so that leaves you know 95 percent living in outdated plugins and themes and things like that which as we said you know they could be entirely abandoned projects that aren't going to get updated so yes so that's the these plugins are really highly used and, and, and less supported. And I guess another issue that, that we see there is is issues with dependencies as well. So an organization might have, you know, they might have had a custom theme developed as, as is common with, with larger organizations. And that theme will then have dependencies on the WordPress core version. If core updates, there is then that sort of inherent latency between when the core gets updated and when that organization's theme can get updated. So, there, you know, we, we often see a, a lag between, you know, a critical vulnerability being announced and patched, and then an organization being able to adopt that because, you know, they're not going to want to necessarily completely change the, the theme of their website to get that updated on day one. They might wait a week for that to happen. So, yeah, a, a large sort of expanding on Aaron's earlier point about the attack surface, you know, that is a significant issue for them as well. We often also see additional vulnerabilities in the way that that WordPress plugins operate. So if we go back to um, sort of imagining it like a like a mobile phone, right, where you've got the App Store, 
all of the applications that you're downloading from the official app store, you know, there's, there's code signing involved. And typically when they're installed and run, they are sandboxed, containerized. The application only has access to its own resources and the specific resources it needs in order to perform its functions. That's not the case with WordPress plugins. They are, you know, they're installed in your WordPress environment and they have full access to everything that the WordPress instance has, which is obviously a, a large risk. So we see things like a small, maybe slightly yes, less used plugin become, become compromised in some way or even indeed maliciously uploaded with a, with a sort of backdoor in it. And that plugin might then go out and look for instances of WooCommerce installed. I think WooCommerce is probably the largest and most well-used commerce plugin for, for WordPress and, you know, inject credit card skimming utility in, into that WooCommerce install because that one plugin is able to interact with the entire, you know, WordPress environment. So that's, you know, that's a, that's a big risk there and, and a really impactful one and doesn't even require the actual WordPress. Uh, sorry, the WooCommerce plugin itself to be vulnerable. It just is attacked by a by a fellow plugin. And as again, I think probably one of the biggest vulnerabilities, misconfigurations really, I suppose, is one that, that Aaron touched on earlier and is a really common initial access point for, for attackers on WordPress instances. Default username is admin. So that's a that's a you know really easy one for for people to try. And as Aaron says, you know, forward slash WP admin, forward slash WP login. These are, you know, two resources, which in most cases are going to redirect you to a login page on WordPress where you can, you know, with a default configuration, you can just sit there hammering that all day long with password attempts. So yeah, it's really easy to find those, those entry points on WordPress as well. Related question. So listeners to this uh, particular episode may well be running. Uh, WordPress instances themselves and saying, actually, you know what, I'd like to check the security of my WordPress instance off the back of this. What, how do they, how can they do that? So what, what steps can they do to check essentially where they're at with things right now? Yeah, sure. So an obvious follow on to, I guess, the point we were just discussing is if you change your, your login directory, you know, you can, you can set that away from WP admin and WP login. You can set that to, to any sort of, you know, long string that, that might be hard to guess that is going to significantly cut down on the sort of automated bot attempts to compromise your your WordPress site. A lot of this stuff isn't isn't you know isn't attacked by uh, by humans. There just are bots that that crawl the web looking for WordPress sites and, and attack them like that. So that's going to knock a huge number of automated attacks off your site. I guess secondarily to that, we've got the sort of generic stuff that we'd recommend for any any website or web application that you know not specific to WordPress so regular sort of penetration testing vulnerability scanning that we we recommend generally from a WordPress specific context there's a there's a really good utility called WP scan it can there's, there's free tiers and, and paid tiers by default it will um with the with the free tier, it will go through and you provide it your your WordPress content directory and your WordPress plugin directory. It'll go through, it will scan your application, your WordPress instance, and it will pull back a list of you know all the um, plugin and theme versions that you're running and whether there are you know known vulnerabilities in, in, in those. They see so they the WP Scan organization maintain that massive list of of sort of very up to date WordPress vulnerabilities and things like that. Which is really useful for you for quickly identifying, you know, what, what might be out there. Again, there are also plugins 
to add to your site, which which help automate some of this stuff for you. There's um well like like the one we discussed earlier, the all-in-one security plugin. Unfortunately, in this case, you know, it happens to be a vulnerable plugin, which which doesn't prove my point very well. You know, but generally these security plugins do um improve your your security posture. But it's also important to remember that attackers are also going to be using these tools. So they are going to look for vulnerabilities in in these common plugins that they know organizations are relying on. WP scan, they're also going to be using that for their own purposes. So they're going to be running the scans just as you are. So yeah, slow double-edged sword there, but good to keep on top of. So at least then you know what other people are going to be potentially finding on your site. Excellent. Thanks, Hugh. And Aaron, just bring you in there. What other parts and bits and pieces can organizations do to secure their WordPress instances? Maybe there's the governance angle, maybe there's the supply chain angle that you kind of referenced in, in there. Is there the specific things that orgs should be doing now it's proactively, I guess, before things get compromised or are exploited. Yeah, definitely. I'd, yeah, governance of WordPress and, and not your you know, external estate, but specifically WordPress, your websites, your web applications. And if you focus it on the WordPress piece itself, well, what's what are the things that if we're using WordPress as an organization, what are the things we care about? Well, we know that WordPress has a plugin ecosystem. We know there are people that have to have high privileged access to the CMS side of WordPress. So introduce some processes to make sure that those are vetted properly. So in the case of plugins, before a plugin can be added to your WordPress instance, make sure you get it reviewed by, if you've got an internal security team, great, use them to review or just your, your IT admins at the very least, just to check, you know, is this a trusted plugin? Are there lots of known vulnerabilities historically with it? What permissions is it asking for? What does it have access to? You can do things like that for the plugin side of it. For user access, you know, as Hugh said, you could change the the access URL, or you can you know, put the access to the CMS side behind a VPN, or make the front end of your site a statically deployed version of WordPress, and actually you only ever do the development and updating on an internal system that then gets cloned and pushed externally with no administrative console, things like that. So look at how you mitigate and you know, put compensated controls around the known weaknesses of operating a large CMS like WordPress. Hugh already mentioned plugins, again, for security plugins in particular, consider some of those, but I would say that, um, yeah, be cautious with how many plugins you end up using. Uh, and other than that, it's just the typical hardening that you would do on any system. So credential management, make sure that's done appropriately, MFA where you can, follow the hardening guides that exist from the WordPress organization and, and other entities that have written hardening guides for WordPress. So yeah, build all of that into your WordPress deployment pipeline so that you're doing regular reviews and auditing of this as well. Excellent. Thanks, guys. So some really good advice in there. Brilliant. So um, we're going to move on to the next topic, which is a discussion opinion section of, the, of this episode in particular. Um, so we're going to talk about um, the newly announced, so this week, the, the US Cyber Trust Mark. But more, more widely than that, we're going to talk about um, standards and the role they play in cybersecurity. Um, you know, are they good? Are they bad? Are they indifferent? What are they driving? Are they, do we like them? Okay, um, so clearly an opinion piece here. Um, so, we'll guys, we'll have a discussion around it. So, just to give you a bit of background to the listeners, the, the US Cyber Trust Mark is essentially a labeling program for smart devices. It's been announced that the release, ultimately, if you like, by the Biden administration. So, the full criteria of it isn't fully defined just yet. It's likely to be based off the NIST recommended criteria for cybersecurity labeling for consumer Internet of Things IoT products. Bit of a mouthful. That's essentially what it's going to be. And what it is is a is a shield, I think, in this instance. So you come along to buy your smart speaker at Best Buy or whatever US 
retailers there are and you look for your smart speak and you look for the one that's got the shield because you know that that's got or it's compliant to the the, the the cyber trust mark essentially so you can have some confidence in um how it's put together the security measures that are embedded in within it is it being designed securely all that kind of good stuff the baseline product criteria has things in there such as and i'm going to read it verbosely because it's quite a long list so asset identification product configuration data protection internet interface access control software updates cybersecurity state awareness, documentation, information and query reception, information dissemination, product education and awareness. So quite a wide, broad range of stuff, essentially, and what, the, what it looks like the, the, the criteria tries to do is match up those baseline criteria with attack types or techniques from the, the match attack framework, for example, so you can kind of map out how an attack might work against those baselines. The concept of using QR codes, so you can come along to your product, scan the QR code that's on it from a security perspective and see the up-to-date picture for your, that product. So is it still supported? Is the documentation correct? Is there a vulnerability disclosure procedure? All that kind of good stuff. I think that's a particularly good piece of idea, essentially. So yes, a product, for example, you buy it off the shelf and it's not secure forever, right? So I think there's this continual view of how it looks in the life cycle of a product to be determined and thought about when these things are being uh, developed so guys let's come off mute and we'll have a, a chat about it um what we think so you will come to you first is iot security a major issue i know you've covered it in a previous episode some time ago Do, is it still something we should be concerned about as a as an industry and as a society absolutely right and if it, if it wasn't i don't think they would have invested the the time and effort in in bringing this standard to the fore yeah we, we covered we covered wearables specifically in uh, in october 21 I think, you know, there are certain sort of key things about IoT devices that, that make them really important and, and make their security sort of impactful. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at things that often have, you know, microphones, cameras, some sort of, you know, human computer interaction element normally. And frequently we'll see them used as part of an organization's security toolkit. So things like, you know, CCTV cameras. So obviously, the, the security of, of this sort of device is is imperative, really. And this sort of standard is really going to push things forward, I, I hope. For a long time, IoT devices have been, you know, small, sort of underpowered chips normally, just by, by nature of the sort of embedded device and things they are. But modern devices, you know, they can support encryption, which is a major step forward because previously that was, you know, highly, very rare because encryption is incredibly computationally expensive to support. So it is great that you know devices are moving towards that, and and, and standards like this are are coming in into place. But I mean, just to sort of demonstrate the fact that IoT security still is a, a major issue, we've you know you can there's an activity called Shodan Safari. So Shodan is a massive sort of search engine full of um, network connected devices, everything on the internet, anything that you know will go out and scan the entire web. If you just look for some of the common IoT ports and protocols and things like that on on Shodan. The number of things that you pull back, you know, CCTV cameras with unencrypted real time streaming protocols and things like that, it's huge, right? So clearly, there is a need for an improvement in IoT security. Brilliant, thanks, you. And um, Aaron, we're talking roughly here about kind of consumer level impacts and consumer level devices, but. Is there an impact to be considered here for enterprises and organizations? Um, so, you, you know, I'm an enterprise, I'd like to put some CCTV cameras in, or I'd like to put some door access control things in, or whatever it might look like. So some devices that can help me run my building, my premise, or my business. 
is a is a things that we need to consider from a an org wide perspective, an enterprise level perspective when we're doing this type of stuff. Yeah, hundred percent. Actually, there's two sides to the the enterprise and organizational piece. There's first actually all those consumer devices that are completely unvetted by you as an organization. You know, me wearing my smartwatch, my mobile phone. Maybe I brought in a little. I don't know, IoT cat that sits on my desk and talks to me, whatever it might be. Those are all non-organization devices that still may have these issues and vulnerabilities. You know, they may be recording sound if they've been compromised. They may be tracking location data if I'm in a sensitive uh, location that uh, I shouldn't have my, my location data tracked in, those sorts of things. And that's kind of, as an organization, you need to have a view and an understanding that there may be an element of these untrusted devices not connected to your network but still potentially inside your facility in some form or another tracking people or data, uh, you know, voice communications. Well, that, that comes down to your risk appetite, right, as a business? So. 100% down to your risk appetite. You know, it, we've, we've mentioned it before multiple times, I think, in previous podcasts that typically critical national infrastructure, public sector, you're going to have a lower appetite for this sort of stuff. At commercial enterprise, I don't think most organizations where their offices are publicly known and you know people share on linkedin that they work they probably don't care so much that someone's brought their watch into work so yeah take it with a grain of salt don't go out there and ban smartwatches in your organization think about the the context of of where you are so that's it from the, the kind of consumer devices side but absolutely on the flip side organizations and enterprises themselves are really getting into the iot space more and more now cat security cameras they're they're not typically these simple closed cctv networks now they're often just connected to the corporate network or some some other thing, and, and they've got a lot more functionality than they used to have. They weren't just being recorded straight onto a tape. Uh, you know, now you might have an app that you can interact with them and, and view the camera footage from anywhere at any time. That sort of thing. You've also got you know other applications, smart doors that are considered IoT to a degree. They were typically on their own networks. Again, we're beginning to see them bleed into broader organization security postures now, as opposed to being an entirely closed off network. You know, they might integrate with Active Directory, things like that. So yes, organizations should for sure be also considering the impact of IoT. And, and back to the whole original point of this being a, a new standard for you know, the kite mark, if you like, for IoT that's going to sit on IoT devices. I think it will give organizations some level of Assurance, if you like, maybe not assurance, but at very least a little bit of confidence in their supplier if they can do that due diligence and the supplier says, you know what, yep, I've, I've got ISO 27001, I've got uh, the new IoT Trustmark, I've got a few other certifications here. And it kind of means that when you do your due diligence to select a supplier as an organization, you feel like they've at least thought about this. They've at least got some way to evidence that they're doing X, Y, and Z to make you feel a bit more comfortable. But again, with everything, there's no guarantees, right? So I think we get a we get a sense of or a feeling of security from maybe a recognised brand, for example, um, versus kind of a, a non-branded item we might have bought off Amazon or whatever, or Alibaba or whatever the kind of marketplace is, right? So I think there's a element where you might feel a bit more secure in the in the brand that you're using as well, perhaps. Um, you mentioned kite marks, um, Aaron, which I'm glad you did. Um, full disclosure, I used to work for PSI, so I've got a fairly good insight into the kite marks that they brought out and, and, and released and they were formed yeah they were around products so secure i think they're called secure applications now so that's an application level kite mark that you can have um you can build also um iot ones as well to different levels and the, the, the levels relate to the use case of and to be honest they are pretty stringent so that i know for example if the if you're testing an application for a kite mark itself then you'll be using generally speaking one of the OWASP asbs 
levels, generally level two, um, but sometimes level three as well. So they can be quite robust. I think the standards in, in that particular area are, are pretty good. Now, the one thing that's lacking is the government level mandate for clients or for organisations to have a kind of for example. So very much voluntary basis at the moment and people use that as a differentiator to market. There's other programmes, standards, if you like, that exist. You've got the Code of Practice for Consumer IoT Security and that's from the DCMS, the NCSC, um, it's kind of old now. It's about five years old. There's 13 controls in there. Um, but to me and you and everybody who's in this industry, controls are fairly noddy, right? So they're things like non-default passwords and, and so on and so forth. So, so stuff that you would actively recommend anyway just through, through the use of, of, of good practice. There's also things like the California's IoT law, which is called the Information Privacy for Connected Devices. And that, was, that came alongside the the uh, CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act, and they kind of released together. This one kind of got not as much publicity and not as much uh, exposure, but they do exist now. And I think this one that they've brought out from the US government, the, the trust mark, I think is a good step. Providing the criteria that sits underneath it is suitably written. So yes, it has to be a bit more in depth than just change the passwords or have a unique password, for example. So I think there's, a, there's an element of that. And also, they has to consider the life cycle of a device. A lot of um, cheaper devices might have a very limited life cycle of support. You know, we're not going to release batches, or we might be using outdated libraries and software components if, you know, at the point of shipping. There's no way to update them, for example. So I think there's, there's an element here of life cycle as well. It's probably a wider question that we'll bring you both into on this one, but does the industry generally, so does the cyber industry need more standards and i think from a perspective of driving the market and driving the user you know the, the buyer's market essentially so do we do we need standards to, to drive good behaviors and therefore increase the security posture of all the organizations in a particular region country geography where it might be um aaron you whoever i don't mind whoever comes in on that one first but i'd love to hear your thoughts yeah i don't mind going first uh, i know uh, that from my perspective I'm of two minds myself, actually. But actually, overall, I think it's a good thing for raising the bar. That minimum criteria, if you like, for IoT vendors in particular is where I care about this, in that if they're just going off doing what they want, not having to worry about any standards or industry-recognized bare minimum baselines on cybersecurity, they're not going to bother doing it. So by introducing one and then giving a, li a little bit of consumer confidence, you know, in it improves their brand presence if they do have this kite mark or, you know, they'll feel left behind if they don't have it. It's going to raise that bar on cybersecurity within the IoT market, right? They're going to start suddenly doing these things that they weren't doing before, that they need to get this accreditation, this kite mark, so that they can still have a brand that has consumer confidence that organizations are going to want to deal with. So it, it's a little bit of a false market in the sense that suddenly this kite mark could become a thing that you just have to get. However, on the flip side, without it, we've already seen and evidence has shown time and time again that IoT devices without this push to have a minimum baseline security criteria, they're not adopting security controls uh, in many cases. Don't get me wrong, that doesn't apply to every IoT device. There are manufacturers out there that follow a well-designed process, a secure process, and they're quite happy to evidence all of their other existing certifications to support that. But I think this one helps raise that minimum bar. And it's a good thing for consumers in that regard because it means that you as a consumer can very quickly identify, yep, this brand is definitely doing something. You know, I've not heard of them before, but it looks like they've got the Cybertrust mark. It looks like they, you know, they have some transparency and they've got disclosure processes. Great, I'll, tr I'll trust buying this device now. So I think it's a good thing overall, although I appreciate 
it means there's just another thing for an organization to do if they're the ones that are having to implement this cyber trust mark scheme. I would say actually very quickly on that as well, because I'm sure he wants to jump in any moment now. I think there's this need for this particular trust mark scheme to integrate perhaps a bit more heavily with existing standards. You know, I myself, as someone that looks after an ISMS, I'd hate another standard to look after and have to do mapping. I know we're already doing a bunch of great stuff in terms of our controls, having to then do it, you know, redo that mapping myself for the, the new trust mark rating is, is going to be really frustrating for me. It's another thing I have to do. It's another use of my time. If we can get some mappings, which I'm sure will come out in time of actually, if you're doing this under, let's say ISO 27001, because it's a very well-known one, then you're probably doing this already under the new trust mark scheme and just make our lives a bit easier as compliance managers and internal security teams to know that if we do X, it maps across to Y, much like the cybersecurity framework does. Uh, that's freely available and does these mappings. Thank you, uh, Aaron. Yeah, and um, you don't know if you've got any kind of thoughts on a wider picture of standards within cyber. So I think it's any useful. Is there a difference between frameworks and standards, for example? Absolutely right, and I guess that's a key point there: frameworks and standards. You know, I guess looking at the the NIST cybersecurity framework, if you genuinely you know go through that the NIST CSF and feel like you've ticked every box there. And you did the same with ISO 27001. You know, the goal of the two of them, you probably end up in a, in a pretty similar state, right? Just with the standard, you get the, the rubber stamp. And with the framework, you get the warm, fuzzy feeling inside. In terms of, you know, standards and whether we need more as a whole, I think, you know, with this one in particular, there is a clearly identified gap in the current sort of array of standards. And it, you know, it really does identify and you know hopefully push forward an area that that needs that i think you know we are though at risk with a lot of standards that are coming out of cluttering cluttering the market with standards right and saying you need this you need this you need this when when really like aaron says if you look at the mappings of those controls against each other there's a there's a lot of duplication so yeah where necessary and i think this one is absolutely all for it yeah and i think it's probably worth a, an extended point there of Regulation without standards doesn't really work either. You can't regulate something without standards for someone to follow as well. So I think there's there's a, a large part of that. And I think, yeah, you're quite right. There's a big difference between frameworks and standards. And I look at something quite close to my experience in the past, which is pen testing. And there are definitely frameworks for pen testing, not so many standards. And then you kind of look at something like Red Team and R versus simulation. And there are frameworks that become a standard. I think so things like um, CBEST and TBREU, that kind of stuff, which is the, the banking sector's standard for performing red team and adversity simulation work, and soon followed by Star Offense, for example. I think that they are good examples of where a framework's devolved into something that's held as a standard by a regulatory body. And I think they're pretty robust. So I think there's a good argument for this kind of stuff driving it. And maybe in the past, the cybersecurity industry has been too immature to have proper standards for it so it's kind of you know it's always finding its feet it's always moving changing a lot and changing aggressively maybe we're at the point in time now where it's old enough now to be able to support properly regulation driven standards i don't know for sure but obviously it's an interesting point of discussion to have and and, and certainly something that may well come along down the line may, may not come along down the line i think we've had a, a fairly decent discussion without really coming to loads of conclusions on that side of things any closing thoughts, Aaron? Any closing thoughts from, from you either? I guess I would say that don't think of standards as the end goal. A thing that helps, they're a bare minimum. They're better than nothing in that regard. But I wouldn't treat them as that's the only thing, A, you should care about if you're the, the organization trying to get the standard. You should be thinking broader than an individual standard to how you apply your security controls. 
And again, go back to doing mappings for the skill controls framework and looking at how it maps to other standards. But then also on the flip side, if you're a consumer of it, don't just trust an organization because it has a, a rubber plate, you know, a rubber stamp saying, yep, I've got the standard. Do your due diligence regardless. But maybe you set minimum criteria of, of standards are a good start point. Plus, we want you to do this, that and the other. That's just supply to due diligence there. So it, it doesn't remove the need for that. It just means that it makes your life a little bit easier when you come to pick these organizations to say, well, actually, this is my bare minimum that I consider acceptable. Thank you, Aaron. Um, have you any, any closing thoughts from yourself? Yeah, and I think, you know, I work I work with smaller organizations quite often who will say 27,001 sounds great, but it's it's way off for us. It's a, it is an end goal for a lot of for a lot of organizations. Right. And I don't think you necessarily need to look at it in, in from the sort of standards perspective of all or nothing. You pass or you fail. If you look at it like a framework, you know, there's, there's guaranteed to be elements from that standard that you probably can adopt at your current organization size that will improve your overall sort of security posture and, and sort of compliance with with things. So yeah, do check them out, even if you don't think you're ready for the whole thing and see what you can take away. All right. Thank you very much. Um, excellent contributions as always, guys. Uh, some really good discussions in there. So September's episode uh, will publish a date imminently. Uh, we're going to be off from podcasting duties um, for the summer period. So we'll, we'll see you back in, in September. Thanks for all the support through the years for all the listeners. Uh, the years, sorry, this year. And uh, we will wish you all a good summer and see you at some point in September. So from me, it's goodbye, thank you. And from Aaron and Hugh, goodbye as well. Yeah, thanks very much, folks. See you soon. Cheers. Bye.